May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. You have heard the text read, and Andy, thank you for being our reader this morning. And as we get into God's Word today, there are some words at the top of my sermon that give me encouragement because I know not only as the choir has so well sung, somebody's praying, but I know that my wife Melanie always is praying for me as I proclaim. And today I give thanks to God for her because it's our 29th wedding anniversary. So she was at the early service today, so she, uh, uh, and then she and Isabella are with the little ones this morning in this service. But I am so very thankful that I have such a supportive and loving wife, and we are very, very blessed to be part of the HRBC family. We met when we were 18 years old at college orientation, and then saw each other again as school started, dated all through college, and got, a, got married a year after. And God has blessed us in so many ways. We came to Richmond in 1995 to attend the Baptist Seminary, and we stayed. And we're very glad that we did. And we're very glad to be here with you. Today I'd like to talk about the power of an invitation and the importance of spiritual friendship. So the power of invitation and the importance of spiritual friendships. Both are life-changing. Both are part of God's unique creation called the church As often as I have the opportunity, I ask church members when I visit with them or see them around, how did you come to attend and join Huguenot Road Baptist Church? And the most frequent answer that I receive is, someone invited us. Someone invited me. There are a lot of folks who were doing some church shopping at one point or another, and they came and joined and were well-received and joined because of that. But most people say, I I came or we came because somebody invited us. And then when I find that out, I ask another question, and that is, why did you stay? And most frequently the answer is, because we made friends there. Spiritual friends are important. And spiritual friends are made in the context of congregation. A simple invitation to come to church resulted for many of you lifelong spiritual friendships. Many of you who I've I've talked with came here as young couples. You raised children together. You worked with the youth together. You went on mission trips together. Many of you vacationed together. You learned about the Bible together. You've laughed together. You have wept together. You have shared meals together. You've struggled together. And maybe a time or two, you've even disagreed with one another together. You've leaned on one another. And in spite of all challenges, you have said, we're in this together. We are HRBC. Today's Scripture lesson, which you heard just a few moments earlier, has many subplots more than we have time to address in these moments. But none of it would have happened had there not been an invitation and spiritual friendship. 
What would it have been like if Paul never would have asked Saul to come on the journey? Paul would not have asked Silas to come on the journey. What would it have been like if Paul did not have Silas as a spiritual friend? Paul asked Silas to join him on mission, and Silas said yes. And the spiritual friendship that was formed would last a lifetime, bearing much fruit for the kingdom of God. Like all Scripture, this Scripture has a context, a backstory. Luke, a companion of the Apostle Paul, authored the Gospel of Luke as well as the Acts of the Apostles. And the book of Acts tells the story of the early church and how it began as a small movement of a small band of Jesus followers that came out of Jerusalem to a global movement that swept through Africa, the Middle East, Asia, and Europe in the first century. The church at Antioch, as you remember, commissioned Paul and Barnabas to go on mission throughout the Mediterranean region. And they spent several years sharing the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, planting churches and developing leaders. Then they returned to Antioch to report to the church all that they had experienced. We call this Paul's first missionary journey. After some time had passed, the 15th chapter of Acts tells us that Paul approached Barnabas about going back to revisit those believers in those churches they had started. And they decided to go, but they had a difference of opinion on who would go with them. Barnabas wanted to take John Mark, who had left on the early side of the first missionary journey, and Paul didn't think that was a good idea to take him on the second one. So Barnabas chose John Mark to go south, and Paul chose Silas to go north and then west. Not only did he choose Silas, he invited Silas. Silas was a leader in the Jerusalem church. We understand that he was a number who were sent to Antioch to bring the results of the Jerusalem conference to that church. He stayed in Antioch a while and then went back to Jerusalem. And sometimes during Paul's first missionary journey, Silas was sent back to Antioch and continued the ministry with the believers there. So when it came time for Paul to look for a companion to go on this second missionary journey, Silas was the one. The list, list was short. We also know that Timothy joined them, and we also know Luke was there. Luke is the author of the book, and many of the we statements that are included in this passage and others were Luke's firsthand experience. Paul and his companions visited the churches that they had started on the first missionary journey, but Paul had his sights on going farther to Asia. He felt that that's where they needed to go next to take the gospel. But in a vision, Paul was told to go to Macedonia. And Macedonia was a place where familiar churches are to you in Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica, and others. After making their way to Macedonia, they ended up in the major Roman colony of Philippi. And when the Sabbath came, they looked for a place to worship, but there were no synagogues there. You remember that uh, in order for a synagogue to exist, there had to be ten married Jewish males present for that organization to exist, and they couldn't find one. So they found a place to prayer alongside the major river running through the city. And Luke tells us that they began to speak to the women who were gathered there at the place of prayer. Interesting 
as Luke would have us to understand and as Paul would, uh, would reveal to us in his ministry that they didn't find all of the men down there at the river, but they found the women at worship. And one of them was named Lydia. And she wanted to hear more about what Paul was saying. She was wealthy. She was a dealer in purple cloth. God opened her heart, and she is the first known Gentile convert to Christianity in Europe. Lydia and the members of her household were baptized. She opened her home up to Paul and Silas and his companions, and they stayed there while they were in Philippi. Paul and Silas and the others again went down to the place of prayer. And one day, this slave girl started to follow them, and Luke tells us that she was possessed by some kind of a spirit. And there were men who owned her who made profit off of her. They made money off of her as a fortune or future teller. They treated her like we would see as a sideshow on a circus. Today, this would be considered a form of human trafficking. There are other injustices that we see in our culture today like payday loans, motels that are rented at exorbitant costs by the week, title lending, and rent-to-own furniture where you never own it. It's the same mentality that abused this girl and took advantage of her and profited off of her. She was going around following Paul, making divinations and talking about God using pagan phrases. She was saying things about the Most High God. And that's a term that we find in the Old Testament but is not used to describe God in the New Testament. Rather, she was equating God as one of many gods, but that He was the highest of many. And perhaps Paul thought that what she was, or what the Spirit was saying through her could have been a stumbling block to others who were hearing his message. He, he finally stopped, and he commanded the Spirit to leave the girl. And the Spirit left the girl at that moment. And she was free. We don't know what happened to her after that. Some scholars believe that she became part of Lydia's church and became a dedicated follower of Christ. Luke doesn't tell us that. That's what we could read and we hope happened. But the problem was now for her owners that they could no longer make money off of her. No more fortune telling. No more money. Her owners seized Paul and Silas and took them before the Roman authorities and the magistrates, which were the two levels of Roman law at the time. Interesting, they did not charge Paul and Silas of robbing them of their livelihood. We would think that they would say to the, magistrate, the authorities and the magistrates, these men, Paul and Silas, interrupted our livelihood and now we can't make a living. But rather, they made three serious charges. First, they accused these men of being Jews. This was what we would say anti-Semitic charges. It was obvious that they were of a minority. Now, we know that they were Christ followers, but they were Jewish in background. And they were accused of interfering with valid economic pursuit. Trafficking this girl was obviously acceptable in the culture there. And Paul and Silas, who happened to be Jewish followers of Jesus, disrupted that. They were charged for being Jewish. Second, Paul and Silas were charged with disrupting the peace quote, throwing the city into an uproar. 
And third, they were charged with preaching an illicit religion. Verse 16, verse 21 of chapter 16 says, quote, by advocating customs unlawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And this third charge really threw everyone into an uproar. It challenged the Pax Romana, the great peace won by Rome's legions and endorsed by Roman law. We also know that there were many retired government officials there in Philippi, and so they, the authorities would definitely not want to disrupt the peace because those people were watching. Paul and Silas are in deep trouble. And note particular, I say Paul and Silas. It's not one or the other, it's both. They need to be saved, but they aren't. Their lives are in jeopardy. Paul could have played his citizenship, his Roman citizenship card, and gotten out of jail at that moment, but he didn't. Paul and Silas faced their difficulties together. They went on mission together. Now they are stripped, beaten, and thrown into the bowels of a local prison. They are put into solitary confinement with their legs in shackles, Paul and Silas, together. One writer states, here's another hinge in the history of the gospel. What will happen when Rome gets its claws into these brave men who are carrying the good news to the ends of the earth? Well, it turns out that this revolting development will once again further the cause of the gospel. Not only was the spirit in Paul stronger than the spirit in the girl, but also the Lord whom Paul served was stronger than the Caesar whom these Romans served. Listen to the rest of this story as is told by Eugene Peterson in the message version of the New Testament. The judges went along with the mob and had Paul and Silas's clothes ripped off and ordered a public beating. After beating them black and blue, he threw them into jail, telling the jailkeeper to keep them under heavy watch so there would be no chance of escape. He did just that, threw them into the maximum security cell in the jail and clamped leg irons on them. Along about midnight, Paul and Silas were at prayer and singing a robust hymn to God the other prisoners couldn't believe their ears. And without warning, a huge earthquake. The jailhouse tottered. Every door flew open and all of the prisoners were freed. Startled from sleep, the jailer saw all of the doors swinging loose on their hinges, assuming the prisoners had escaped. He pulled out his sword and was about to do himself in, figuring he was as good as dead anyway. Once the authorities saw that he couldn't keep the prisoners in the jail responsibly, his life would be ended. Paul stopped him. Don't do that. We are all still here. Nobody has run away. The jailer got a torch and ran inside. Badly shaken, he collapsed in front of Paul and Silas and he led them out of jail and asked, Sirs, what do I have to do to be saved to really live? And they said, put your entire trust in the Master Jesus. Then you'll live as you're meant to live. And everyone in your house included. They went on to spell out in detail the story of the Master Jesus. The entire family got in on this part. They never did get to bed that night. The jailer made them feel at home, dressed their wounds. And then he couldn't wait till morning. He was baptized. He and everyone in his family. There in his home, he had food set out for a festive meal for Paul and Silas. 
It was a night to remember. He and his family had put their trust in God and everyone was in on the celebration. What an amazing story. Before the jailer was washed in the baptismal waters, he washed the wounds of the preacher's. Then he took them to his own home, which scholars believe was above the jail, and set a meal before them. Perhaps we're seeing a hint of the Lord's table here. The Eucharist, followed by the baptism. The baptism, followed by the Lord's Supper. The story of the jailer ended just as the story of Lydia with immediate hospitality and great joy because both the jailer and his entire family were converted to Christ. And all of this happened in the context of an invitation and a spiritual friendship. Silas had said yes to Paul's invitation and they had both said yes to what God wanted them to do. Paul and Silas, they were in it together no matter what. Together they saw the conversion of Lydia and her family. Together they saw the slave girl freed from physical and spiritual bondage. Together they were stripped, beaten, and flogged, and they faced a dark night of the soul, as St. John of the Cross reminds us. Together they sang songs of praise at night. Together they saw the conversion of the jailer and his family. Together Paul and Silas would be freed, and together to them the jailer said, Go in peace. Church, we are like Paul and Silas. We are called to be the body of Christ. We belong to one another. We are in this journey together. We connect God with God and neighbor together. We grow in Christ together. We are transformed and transforming together. We give together. We share the gospel together. We face hardships together. We see successes together. And today we break bread together. As we are all invited to the Lord's table. We are all invited to take part in this sacred meal. We remember the message of Jesus to His disciples the night that He was betrayed when He took bread and gave thanks and broke it and said, take, eat, this is My body which is given for you as often as you meet this do in remembrance of me. And in the same way, Jesus took the cup of wine and blessed it and gave thanks. And he poured it out and he said, this is my blood which is shed for you for the remission of your sins and the sins of many. As often as you meet together, take, drink, this do in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the coming of the Son of Man. Shall we pray? We thank You, O God, for this bread, symbolic of the body of Christ given for us. And we thank You, O God, for this juice, the fruit of the vine, symbolic of the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross for the sins of the world. We are redeemed by His work on our behalf. Today, as we prepare our hearts and minds to receive this meal, we acknowledge that we are sinners and that we fall short of Your glory, known and unknown. Things that we leave behind, things we know we're supposed to do and don't do, 
Lord, we offer our confessions to You, and we are grateful because of what Your Word reminds us, and that is that when we are honest and confess our sins to You, that You are faithful and just and will forgive us of all of our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. Today we approach the throne of grace with confidence that we will receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.